Welcome to the Lapsus Lima podcast. Please support us by signing up for member-exclusive content at lapsuslima.com. Hello, I'm David Getson. In 1927, Malevich was in Berlin. He wasn't escaping the Soviet Union. He was trying to get a book published. The painter had made visits to the German capital before, as early as 1922, when Bolshevik forces were barely mopping up the post-revolutionary civil war, there had been a very influential exhibition of Russian, freshly Soviet, art in Berlin. While Vladimir Tatlin's huge model of the Monument to the Third International garnered much attention, a young architect, Ludwig Hilbersheimer, was drawn to the radical simplicity and clarity of Malevich, who would return to Berlin in 1927 for an exhibition arranged by the radical art collective the Novembergruppe. During this stay, the architect and the painter met and spent long hours taking walks, engaged in discussion via an interpreter, who was probably secret police, as neither spoke the other's language. Perhaps because Hilbersheimer has come to be known as the most sachlich, the most matter-of-fact, of modernist architects, it is remarkable that he placed more value on the suprematist work of Malevich than on the constructivist art of Tatlin. He would assist Malevich in getting his book Die Gegenstandlose Welt, The Non-Objective World, released as Bauhaus Book Number 11. In the introduction to the 1959 English translation, Hilbersheimer remarks on both constructivism and suprematism, the two sides of the oft-conflated Soviet avant-garde. The most important work of constructivism was Tatlin's Tower of the Third International. Tatlin was not an engineer, but an artist. His tower was a synthesis of the technical and the artistic. It opened up the conventional body of the building and sought to combine the inside with the outside. In a way, Tatlin brought to realization the futurist dream of a dynamic architecture. This is significant praise, but coming from the man who would envision, and in the case of Lafayette Park in Detroit, see to fruition, block out urban planning that made Le Corbusier look like a flower child, one might expect him to hold up a favorable contrast to Tatlin that carried less of an artistic flourish, and more of a sense of engineering. That is perhaps how he built, but it is not what he wrote. Immediately following his discussion on Tatlin, he mentions Malevich, the man whom he professionally endorsed as far surpassing the bonds of functionalism. The suprematism of Malevich was in greatest contrast to the utilitarian aims of constructivism. 
Malevich was opposed not only to any combination of art with utility, but also to all imitations of nature. His aim was pure art, and his own non-objective art is most radical. He insisted that art and the feelings which generate it are more basic and meaningful than religious beliefs and political conceptions. Religion and the state in the past employed art as a means of propaganda to further their aims. The usefulness of works of technology is short-lived, but art endures forever. A Doric temple is not beautiful today because it once served a religious purpose. This purpose no longer exists. Its form originated from a pure feeling of plastic proportions, and it retains its vitality and validity for all time. We are no longer aware of the original purpose of the temple, but we admire it as a work of art. Malevich, in much the same way as Plato, broke through the barrier of sense-perception of reality. He went on to say that Malevich's book was, without question, one of the profoundest statements of aesthetic theory of the 20th century, comparable in importance to that great work Concerning the Spiritual in Art by Malevich's countryman Vasily Kandinsky. Even within the most zachlich of the Neues Bauern architects, expressionist sentiment still held sway. For Hilbersheimer, the most enduring of art was form originating from pure feeling. That being said, such sentiments do not an expressionist make. In the non-objective world, Malevich avoids the inward-facing orientation that we examined in our episodes on Kandinsky. While the production of the most enduring art is understood by Hilbersheimer in an expressionist way, expression here is a means to an end rather than an end in itself. And this brings us close to the core of what makes Malevich's work and theory unique. As we just explained, he is the furthest thing from a functionalist, yet he fully embraces the technological machine society and art's place within it. He understands a work of art as a materialization of inner feeling, but he is not himself an expressionist. Art is an integral part of the transformation of man and society, but in order to play this part, it must be as removed from function and the so-called applied arts as possible. What seems at first to be a contradiction ends up playing a pivotal role in the dialectical dynamic that Malevich researched and envisioned.
While many artists of the 20th century argued, or at least believed, that art could change the world, Malevich ran actual experiments and proposed a theory of how this change operates, hypothesizing that geometric form spiritually enters a mind as bacteria physically grows on a culture. In this sense, Hilbersheimer was correct in aligning Malevich with Plato. They both conceptualized and analyzed the pathways between ideas, perception, and creation. Both argued that politics and society at large are profoundly impacted by the images that seep through the senses and into our minds. What remains unsaid in that text, though, is the revealing and crucial difference between Malevich and Plato. In dialogues such as Symposium, Timaeus, and especially Republic, Plato offers the politically charged view that, beyond our immediate reality of the senses where change, imperfection, and death hold sway, there is an even more real, though not immediately visible world, of perfect, unchanging eternal forms. The sphere of being. Our immediate world, the sphere of becoming, is merely a shadow of these, projected before us on the walls of the allegorical cave by a light we cannot see. Mathematical concepts, such as the Pythagorean solids, offered an accessible glimpse at this eternal realm. If the philosopher kings of the city-state were educated about this eternal realm and became capable of seeing it, they would be able to bring the world of change, imperfection, and death closer to the supralunar world of eternal, unchanging forms. For Plato, this was the essence of correct leadership and governance. It is a credit to the enduring legacy of Plato that 20th century interpretations of his view on eternal form tilt conceptions in art to ideas of the unchanging and eternal. For example, art historian Yves-Alain Bois writes of how Mondrian believed that he could be faithful to his Neoplatonic dream of unveiling the essence of things behind their appearances without abandoning those appearances, letting the motif do the work of revelation by itself. This is a goal set out for a Platonic Republic to attain. Mondrian's sometime colleague, Theo van Doesburg, would state this case to the Bauhaus couched in the sentiment that every machine is the spiritualization of an organism. 
the spare reiterations of primary colors and triangle, square, circle combinations that characterized the Bauhaus's middle period are a direct reflection of this brand of Neoplatonic influence. In many ways, this is the Bauhaus that, through the international style and its postmodern revivals, gets repeated, remembered, and reinterpreted. It is easy to do so through reflections of supposedly essential and unchanging forms. And, if one is to believe Hilbersheimer, the distinct influence of suprematism on the Bauhaus that came through Malevich's student El Lissitsky remains connected to Plato, even as it embodies his philosophy in a way that seems peculiar to the 20th century. The Western tradition has tended to frame the theory of forms dualistically. One of the most compelling controversies surrounding the interpretation of Plato is the argument between a binary and ternary interpretation of the discourse on forms. The binary interpretation popularly presents the division between ideal and actual, being and becoming, as we have just discussed. But the narrative of the dialogues examines concepts much richer than that bivalent split, and the multidimensional nature of the forms is ignored in many Western discussions of Plato that emphasize Republic's applied forms without taking the more detailed theoretical treatment within Timaeus into account. In Timaeus, Discussion is had on the nurse of becoming, an amorphous state of being that shook the forms into existence out of the four elements drawn from primordial chaos. Plato mentions a triton genos, a third kind alongside forms and their imitations. This is the chora literally space, also known as the receptacle of becoming. The Kora is what underpins all transformation, the space that allows it to happen. Within the Timaeus, a fire is not merely a shadow of eternal fire alongside a shadow of eternal air and so forth. These qualities are transmitting their becoming to one another in a cycle. Plato argues that these qualities are outward appearances of a unified substance, linked in a process of cyclical transformation. Whenever we see anything in a process of change, for example fire, we should speak of it not as being a thing, but as having a quality. Water, again, we should speak of not as a thing, but as having a quality. These qualities which are, when embodied, 
the echoes of the eternal forms are stamped out onto the matter of the sensible world like minting a coin. De Steele, the epitome of a new hyper-rational northern style, emphasized the effacement of this third space to emphasize still, rigid geometry, eliminating the dynamic boundary between being and becoming, scrubbing hard to remove it like clearing a soaped-out window. The abstraction of suprematism, born in the East between revolutions on the eve of war, was going to embrace this space of change. And so, within the contentious ideological ferment of 20th century art, we see two understandings of Plato vying for legitimacy and influence amongst architects, each wanting to transform the world, but by very different means. And within the realm of design, this contrast proved to be consequential. So let us see what happens when the binary interpretation of platonic form is assumed. In the simplistic enforcement of ideals taken from an isolated reading of Republic, social leaders, designers, or urban planners choose what forms they find to be ideal and impress them upon the city-state, expecting that the closer the extant forms step to an unchanging ideal, the better society will be. Indeed, individuals will change to match these forms and be improved for it. In many ways, that is a summary, warts and all, of the international style as an expression of de Steele and purist ideology writ large within 20th century architecture. From tubular steel chairs all the way up to the Seagram building or the Radiant City. The problem with this approach has always been the gap between the ideal and the actual. If you imitate the unchanging and perfect, you guarantee a large amount of ill fit for this most imperfect ever-changing world. Think of how some 1960s international-style buildings have electrical conduits or water pipes embedded in concrete. It makes for idealized geometry and unworkable plumbing. The ternary interpretation of Plato affords something very different change is not only accounted for, but explicitly acknowledged as inevitable fact. Forms pass in and out, and matter never takes a permanent shape. Design from this ternary perspective is, as a result, quite distant from the aforesaid binary interpretation 
by mere virtue of anticipating change and adapting to it. Timaeus discusses how the material of the physical world and the forms made from it are to be regarded. Suppose a man modeling geometrical shapes of every kind in gold and constantly remolding each shape into another. If anyone were to point to one of them and ask what it was, it would be much the safest, if we wanted to tell the truth, to say that it was gold, and not to speak of the triangles and other figures as being real things, because they would be changing as we spoke. We should be content if they even admit of a qualitative description with any certainty. The same argument applies to the natural receptacle of all bodies. It can always be called the same, because it never alters its characteristics. For it continues to receive all things, and never itself takes a permanent impress from any of the things that enter it. It is a kind of neutral plastic material on which changing impressions are stamped by the things which enter it, making it appear different at different times. And the things which pass in and out of it are copies of the eternal realities, whose form they take in a wonderful way that is hard to describe. We will follow this up some other time. For the moment, we must make a threefold distinction and think of that which becomes, that in which it becomes, and the model which it resembles. We may indeed use the metaphor of birth and compare the receptacle to the mother the model to the father, and what they produce between them to their offspring. We feel that Hilbersheimer was correct in associating Malevich's formulation of suprematism with Plato. These things which pass in and out, that take form in such a wonderful way that is hard to describe, is exactly what Malevich focuses on in the first of his two essays within the non-objective world. Now, Plato presented a useful heuristic of form and change with his three spheres, but was somewhat stymied by how he analogized the receptacle of becoming. Because he was a man living in a culture whose imagination shrank from understanding of space and void, the Cora being presented as female and empty was akin to sticking up a label over the opening to read, Here be dragons. A heuristic is good as far as it is intelligible. To confront this roadblock in analyzing the metaphysics of form creation, Malevich does something very interesting. He understands 
his limits, and does not force himself to attempt, as Goethe did in the long-winded explorations of Faust Part Two, to make manifest and clear the eternal feminine. While Malevich does not outwardly mention the genders, he alludes instead to qualities, such that the roles are thus symmetrically reversed. Plato presents the ideal forms and ideas, that which transmits, as explicitly male. Malevich writes of concepts as being receptive, penetrated, and transformed before they can produce new art. What was female in Plato, the process of becoming, takes on a male aspect and is no longer empty space or mutable stuff lacking inherent quality, which is why it's been nearly impossible to describe without considerable effort. Plato devotes whole sections to mythologizing this nurse of becoming, repeating the same ideas from several angles and exclaiming how hard it is to relate. The process of becoming, as understood by suprematism, follows a similarly ternary heuristic, but with the roles rotated, increasing clarity, and examining difference in outcome and historical change in a way that Plato never could have. The process produces distinct results, whose characteristic differences are due to the inflections of culture and, specifically, to what Malevich called the additional element. This was a term coined to actualize the differences between visual cultures, the morphogenetic seeds that cause the respective expressions of art to grow in different ways. Athenian culture, immersed in discussion and physical examples, still valued today, of aspirationally eternal and universal forms, would have felt no need to describe an additional quality for the substratum that accepts the imprint of an idea. Everything was one culture, even in religion. Zeus was Ammon, Jupiter, and Indra. Thoth was Mercury and Hermes. Idea shaped the material to a total degree. For Malevich, who observed the rapid changes taking place in early 20th century industry, art, and culture, it could not be so easy. The ideal and universal city of the Republic was impracticable, but the process from Timaeus was not discarded. It was modified by the spaces of culture it struck. The painter thus wrote, The additional element is the earmark of a culture, and it is expressed in painting by a characteristic use of the straight line and the curve. 
the peculiar character of any new visual environment exercising its effect upon us constitutes that additional element which brings about a change in the normal relationship between the element of consciousness and that of the subconscious he had begun the essay by stating that artistic creation is the subconscious mind actualized in the physical world so the subconscious mind is the source of forms which corresponds to plato's realm of the ideal when the culture exposes the additional element to the mind as malevich would deliberately do for individuals in his lab-type experiments, the world of the physical receives the work of art. It is the subconscious that gives birth in this model, the recast yet still inaccessible realm of ideal forms, seeded by the non-physical geometric qualities stemming from a physical culture and so art is the progeny of this geometry and the subconscious in a post-freud western world plato's mediterranean roles of the heuristic of becoming were altered instead of space being female and inscrutable it was the realm of eternal forms now labeled subconscious that became mysterious and off-limits save through heavy doses of dream myth and symbol suprematism advanced two profound alterations to the metaphysics of creativity one was the step away from the more common binary interpretation of plato's being and becoming into the ternary of being cora and becoming the second and even more radical inflection was to shift the focus on the microscope so that the gestating feminine was no longer the plastic substrate of the world around us but the deep subconscious from which we are inspired and so the detail to be examined by leadership was no longer the realm of ideal form but the enveloped cultural space the cora transformed into additional element for the first time since the ideas of the west had been declared to be fading the ability to see and examine new conceptions of cultural space in detail was provided but this tool the ternary heuristic was not broadly applied los kandinsky itten grotheus even spengler were all on some level intuitively sensing a radical change in the nature of how space was understood los saw his three-dimensional raumplan as a concert of vessel and void seeking 
to make his architectural compositions harmonious. Kandinsky, Itten, and Gropius all attempted in their own ways to research and anticipate what the spatial sense of the West was transforming into. Spengler expressed it in a philosophy of history. He described a Faustian, Western cycle of understanding that was coming to an end and expected a new system to arise from Russia, of all places. But it was Malevich who was advancing systematic ideas of geometric and spatial change and development at a level more advanced than anyone else at the time. Recall that the three basic elements of suprematism, square, cross, and circle, are not platonic ideals to be strictly manifested and aspired to. They are not Euclidean geometric purism. They are seeds that cause transformation, with the black square being presented as the starting point, an alpha and omega, wherein all things end and begin. Join us as we peer over Malevich's shoulder, watching him inject various additional elements into the minds of painters and duly producing results. Next time on Lapsus Lima.